I have to tell the people about the Patreon. Yes, you do. Patreon.com slash SMDB. SMDB, like so many damn books. For just a dollar, you can join up and you get access to all the exclusive content that I record just for the Patreon. Also, you get to join the book club. The So Many Damn Books book club. It's been some of the best conversations I've had about books. It really always sounds like a blast. I usually like come home and just hear like giggles coming from the library. So it's a great time. You should join. And I would love to have more people join the fray. You may or may not know that Christopher runs this whole show himself on the hosting side, on the technical side, everything. This is a one-man show, truly. He does it all. Support your boy Christopher. Even at the dollar level really helps. So uh, join up patreon.com slash smdb i'd love to have you patreon.com slash smdb on with the show this is where this theme song plays that i won't play here so many so many so many damn books Hello and welcome to So Many Damn Books, a blessing, a curse, a podcast. I'm your host, Christopher, and I have Elaine Shea Chow joining me in the damn library hyperspace Zoom zone area. Elaine, thank you so much for joining me. Elaine is a Taiwanese-American writer from California, a 2017 Rona Jaffe Foundation graduate fellow at NYU, and a 2021 NYSCA NYFA Artist Fellow. Her short fiction appears in Black Warrior Review, Guernica, Tin House Online, and Plowshares. And she's here to discuss disorientation, which is her exciting, so fun, and God, I read it in two days. Just like could not put it down. Um, Actually listened to it in two days. That is how much I couldn't put it down uh, because I started reading it and I was like, I'm going to want to listen to this while I walk around. Elaine, thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to talk to you. Thank you so much for having Christopher. I'm so happy to be here. And wow, that's amazing. An audiobook in two days, because it's oh. even longer than reading. <laughs> I was going between the two so I could like li- listen to it and then I would go and sit down from where I left off with the with the narrator. It was it was really great great. Aww. It's a great audiobook. Yeah, Jennifer Kim, she's an actress. She's in quite a lot of films and TV and She's in search. She plays this character in Search Party, Agnes Cho, who I oh. love so much. That's her. Do you know? Do you remember Agnes Cho? Yeah. Wow. That's so cool. I love Search Party. Me too. I was an extra uh, twice on it, actually. Oh, that's so awesome. <laughs> what season? Yeah, that's one of my my side hustles. Um. So I was in season three when they. It was like a a scene at that amusement park. Uh huh where Drew works for a while. Um, but I was sadly cut out. Like the part you would see me, someone stood up and like, <laughs> me and I was like, damn. And then I was in the second to last episode of this, se- the last season. Oh, like wow. Season five. Yeah, where it was like, if you've seen it, that, yeah, have yeah. you watched it? Okay, that I've seen really it, yes. chaotic <laughs> part at night that shot, I was, uh-huh. I was in that part, yeah. So it was like a... Uh, 14 hour shoot from 4 p.m. to 6 a.m. It was super intense, but super fun. (laughs) Uh, Your bio did not say anything about you being a background actress. (laughs) I should I should add that in first and foremost. (laughs) Yeah, it's a background actress and a Taiwanese American writer. (laughs) Uh, That is so cool. Well, that's um, yeah. Well, she did an amazing job disorientation is so good and inspired this wild cocktail that i am calling liquid lucidax i love it and so i wanted to make a cocktail that um ingrid would like so the um rim of the cocktail is pop rocks which I thought she would appreciate because she has such, she loves junk food. And then it's a blue carousel gin, this um, botanical blossom that's actually like a non-alcoholic, one of these things that is popping up by a brand called Abstinence, which mm-hmm. is not my favorite name for, but whatever. It's a really, really delicious sort of, it reminds me of a gin replacement, but I use gin as well. Uh, and then lime and simple syrup shaken and uh, poured into this glass with Pop Rocks. And it is mm. lovely. 
Oh. That sounds delightful. Oh, I think Ingrid would love, yeah, getting her <laughs> junk food fix at the same time as getting, you know, buzzed. Exactly. <laughs> and, um, you know, I just hope I, I don't have the same troubles with this Lucidex. And like the Pop Rocks, I have to like drink around them because I feel like you're going to be able to hear them on my voice on the microphone. Oh, probably. Yeah, because they they sort of last for a while, I, I feel like. Yeah, like longer than you think. Seconds. <laughs> I, I saw that the um, July 4th um, Oreo, fireworks Oreos are out and they put Pop Rocks in that. So when you bite into the Oreo, it tastes like you have fireworks in your mouth. <laughs> exciting, an exciting time of year. <laughs> yeah, an exciting time we live in, in general, <laughs> to have such things. Are you drinking something special for the recording here? I'm drinking here? a uh, mango lacrosse. Ooh. <laughs> Nice summer, summer drink to beat the heat. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely love the mango flavor. One of my favorites. I think limoncello is my new favorite though of theirs. I really like that one. That one is polarizing. I like, I don't know why some people, I guess they're very thrown by the vanilla. Um, oh yeah, it tastes sort of like that there's just a little powdered sugar in there or something. It's mm -hmm, nice. Mm -hmm. Somehow Did sweet. No, apparently Lacroix there's no real flavor all the flavor is from smell so someone told me i haven't actually tried it but someone told me if you plug your nose and drink it you will taste nothing you will taste just seltzer oh. apparently the taste is all in the smell I, I haven't tried it out yet but that's what i've heard i feel like this is like that yankee candle thing where if you're if all of your flavored Lacroix don't taste like anything that's because you have COVID. You know how like all the oh. Yankee Candle reviews, like you can tell when there's a COVID wave when there's more Yankee Candle reviews, like this candle doesn't smell like anything. <laughs> exactly. So onward, the next part of the show is called, What Did You Buy? It's just a celebration of what did you buy? What did you get sent? Did you, I mean, you must be in bookstores a lot recently, going to readings and stuff. I feel like I wouldn't be able to walk out with something anytime like that. Uh, have you got anything recently? I have actually just uh, two days ago on Wednesday, I uh, did a reading at Debuts and Redos, which is a reading series organized by Isle McElroy at um, Book Club Bar. Oh, that's a great, sweet little side. place. Yeah. yeah, it was actually my first time there and it was so nice. It really captured that feeling of a books art and a bar. Um, <laughs> and I got uh, everyone's books uh, who, who was also reading with me and Isle's books. So I got The Atmospherians um, and I'm so excited to read it. I mean, I'm so excited for all of these. Um, and I read with Mary South. Mm -hmm. So I got You Will Never Be Forgotten. And the uh, section she read from was so funny, like this really great deadpan uh, humor, which I love. Um, and a third book is Abundance by Jacob Guanzon. And I think this was the Grey Wolf, um, like the winner of Grey Wolf's prize. If I'm not mistaken, but anyways, that uh, that passage that he read from was also really amazing. It was so poetic and and it felt like it, it, it was like a performance, mm. a poetry performance. Yeah, so um, I, I was love very when people honored. That. Yeah, I know. Not not everyone can. Um, so yeah, they were all wonderful. I was so glad to just meet them and hang out and get their lovely books. Yeah, that sounds really awesome. I picked this up. I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about this. Um, it's called Hide by Kirsten White. And it's mm. about, um, it's about a seven day hide and seek game in an abandoned amusement park. Whoa. And the end papers are like, the amusement park paper like written all over by the that people. That is so awesome. So pretty. I am. Um, I think it's going to be a really fun, like the true definition of beach read, like the old version of it, where you just 
disappear for 250 pages into something thrilling. Oh, so cool. And then this book, One's Company, comes out, um, I think, this week by Ashley Hudson. And it's about a lottery winner who buys a mountain resort and turns it into the set from Three's Company so that she can live out episodes of the show. Whoa. Oh, that sounds so fun. It sounds amazing. It sounds kind of like that Tom McCarthy novel, Remainder, but like with a sitcom mm-hmm. twist, which I appreciate. Oh, yeah. As someone who loves to rewatch sitcoms. So very exciting books out there. Yeah. Speaking of exciting books, yours, Disorientation. Can you tell um, the listeners who might not be familiar yet uh, what your book's about? Yeah, it's about a 29-year-old PhD student named Ingrid Yang. Uh, She's in her eighth year of a PhD program, and she's miserable. She's researching this poet named Xiaowen Chao, uh, who she never wanted to research in the first place. And Mm. he's a really canonical, famous poet who's been dead for several years. Uh, But she finds this mysterious clue in the archives. and basically starts uh, doing some breaking in, some staking out, and gets in all sorts of trouble trying to figure out um, who really is Xiao and Chao. And when she makes this really shocking discovery about who he is, it sort of sets off um, a bunch of different events in her life. She really has to reckon with Uh, parts of her past, herself, her relationships, her friendships, her view of the world, really, um, in a way that she never wanted to. But it's really a story about Ingrid's journey. And, you know, hopefully it's it's funny, too. And I wrote it with a lot of heart, too. So, yeah, I try to create a mix of that somehow was like, can you write an earnest satire? I will try. (laughs) What is that? I, I've I've been seeing people call your book satire. The flap copy even calls it satire. What does that mean for you? Um, were you think you were you thinking I'm writing a satire while you were writing it, or was that something that came through in editing? Yeah, uh, the the latter. So I when I was writing it, I I don't think I thought of it as satire. I think, um, you know, I I went where. Uh, the humor led me, you know, I was just trying to make myself laugh in a lot of ways. And it wasn't because a lot of the things in the book are based on real events, Mm. down to sometimes like the dialogue, uh, I would steal from, you know, like a Facebook debate or something like a lot of it is just it's all real stuff. And then even some things that I made up later on, I found out existed like the sanctuary is a safe space for white students. And that actually existed at the University of Maryland. <laughs> oh, God. Yes. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was only after I was done that I think, yeah, satire. I guess it's a way you're, you're trying to figure out how to describe your book to other people. Mm. And I was like, I think, you know, this I, I like poke fun at things and it's humorous. So I guess that's satire but I don't know I think in retrospect and now talking to also readers experiences like a lot of readers who have said this is extremely realistic to my life (laughs) I'm like I appreciate that and you know I don't know fully anymore is is it a satire because it's like if satire hinges on what's believable it then it could constantly shift depending on the audience right and what they think is believable. I completely agree. I feel like these satires have become strange because they started to come true. These things, these bigger details or like these bigger swings of like, oh, no one would, no former, you know, head of a Chinese literature department would turn into like an alt-right figure. Like that wouldn't happen. But it, you know, but then reality keeps making us further and further from anything that we thought was believable in the past. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, that's why um, I think if you live through the Trump era, I mean, hopefully, I say that hoping it's it's over, but um, (laughs) 
it was it's it's like yeah how can you deny that that can happen like our democracy was you know undermined our election was undermined and the white supremacists were just popping up left and right you know always there but just now very free to be themselves in public they were yeah. good people you know <laughs> <laughs> so it it was like yeah i was really in michael's trajectory was hugely inspired by just the absurdity of what i was witnessing in our country and michael is ingrid's thesis uh, advisor a uh, dissertation her, her dissertation advisor, advisor. Yeah. um talk about the dissertation world what um what drew you to tell a story about this world? Mm, well, I did two and a half years of a PhD program. It, it was a French one, so I don't have direct experience with American grad school and, and PhD programs. But the French version was, yeah, you were just told to write your dissertation from the second you started. <laughs> so that's actually all Whoa. I have experience with. Yeah, you don't actually, you don't have the sort of, I think, seminars and comprehensive exams and all that, that takes up like a lot of an American uh, program. But yeah, for two and a half years, I was, you, you just feel consumed. I mean, for me, I felt consumed by the past and the lives of these dead uh, white women that I was researching. And it, it's, it's weird, like you, you do start to feel the deeper you go into it, sometimes it feels like you're going further away from reality because there's so much minutia, there's so much you, you have to learn all these facts. You know, I was learning um, what these writers are paying for in rent and down to like Juna Barnes was, um, you know, she had so little that Peggy Guggenheim uh, gave her old underwear. <laughs> <laughs> to Judah and you, you know I mean it's it's important to know when it's like oh okay so that was the experience of some writers and then fucking James Joyce was you know had so many patrons and when eating oysters buying his wife like fur coats and running in a debt without having a job like literally people are just giving him money <laughs> so it was it was interesting it's like you learn a lot of minutia that puts things into context, right? But then I just felt, yeah, like Ingrid says at some point that you're losing your youth in a basement. Yeah. You're devoting so much of your energy and emotional energy too, and time to, in my case, dead white people that I'm like, what, what would you think of me if you saw me? You know, <laughs> if I was alive in your time, and you passed me on the street, how would you? <laughs> it's, it's illogical, but it was an emotional logic of am i willing to devote this sort of um generosity to people who may not have done the same for me so um that was where i got like when ingrid talks about the dissertation and the pressures of it too that that was where i was pulling from mm. and it was such like this strange experience that you wanted to keep reliving it as you were writing? Oh, <laughs> um, <laughs> not really. I, I feel like, I don't know, it was, I guess I felt some pressure to include like, oh, what is it like to be a grad student? I don't know. It wasn't something that I honestly was that interested in. I think academia, it was just a useful setting for what I need really wanted to talk about, right? This rampant Orientalism um, and fetishization in more than just one sense. So it, it was useful for that. And I, you know, I was familiar with it. So that helped too. Um, but yeah, I'm sort of out of all the things in the novel, it's like the least interesting part to, to me personally, <laughs> but it's nice when, I mean, I hear from grad students who are like, oh, this is so relatable. And I, it's just like what I went through and I was like, oh, okay, cool. Good to know I pulled it off. And <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about the creation of 
Ingrid as a character. She's like lovably frustrating. You're always one. You're always wanting to push her like a little further. Um, and there's times where you're just like, ah, come on! Like you're. She's always nearly doing something, and you want her to take that extra step. And it's sort of exciting to watch as she does end up doing those things. Yeah, I think Ingrid. Yeah, she's she is super frustrating. <laughs> um, I think I built her character knowing that because of the story I wanted to tell um, ab about these revelations, right, a, a, a social or political awakening, that the character would need to begin the novel not having those revelations. And also it's funnier. I mean, I just think if Ingrid's character was sort of all-knowing, I don't I just I don't know if the story would be there. I don't know if also it would be fun to read about if she's just what sort of like explaining things to the audience, or, you know, um, saying like, oh, I know I know all these things or I guess in some ways that's what Vivian's for. But for Ingrid, I wanted this character who I knew would could create the a lot of comic moments because she is clueless <laughs> and um her process of butting up against all these different realizations and and beliefs people whose politics are different from hers is was part of the the story so her character was in a lot of ways i guess built around this actual narrative and story that i wanted to tell um and so yeah, she sort of, she didn't re I wrote three different versions and honestly, in sort of all three versions, she sort of uh, stays quite true to that character. We're just out of touch with, I think, the truth, mm -hmm. someone who represses and suppresses a lot yes. and finds a lot of relief in ignorance is bliss until, you know, she can't anymore and it's staring at her in the face. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Vivian is often the one who's pointing it out. And I mean, those are some of the most comic scenes when she goes to the protest and she says she, she's not going to the protest you all know about. Um, I just, I love the, those sequences of trying on ideologies for size and seeing if they fit you. I mean, that's something that you do in, I thought, more of undergrad, but I can see that you can, like keep your bubble very small if you want to, especially in academia. Mm, that's a great way to put it. Yeah, trying on different ideologies. Yeah, that was <laughs> when she tries to infiltrate the POC caucus in her like disguise. Yes. Oh, that cracked me up. <laughs> uh, you, you said that you wrote three different versions of this. What, what do you mean? Yeah, three different versions with different storylines and characters and um, from scratch each time. I think <laughs> I allowed myself to copy and paste like, you know, a couple paragraphs, but otherwise it was writing from scratch. And uh, it was not some like very, you know, conscientious uh, writing exercise or sort of program that was like this is how you produce the best writing is just right. rewriting it was failure i oh. i was not trying to write three versions you know i would write a version and be like aha i've written a novel it's this is it you know um but then it would dawn on me that i hated it or you know it wasn't working for all these reasons um, so like the first version i think it was just me i couldn't find my voice um, I basically wanted to be Paul Beatty and there is only one Paul Beatty. Mm. And I learned that, you know, the hard way in um, learning, I had to find my voice. Mm -hmm. The second version is all in the first person. Um, and that didn't work for a lot of reasons, but I think it was in, in retrospect, you know, it was important that I write from Ingrid's interior, you know, space oops um and yeah the third version was I, I went back to third person and um incorporated things from you know both the first and the second and made up new things and it was just honestly so much trial and error i 
I just didn't know what I was doing. So <laughs> three versions is a result of throwing, you know, you know, what is it? Shot in the dark. You're just seeing what sticks because no one teaches you how to write a novel. Mm. Well, and, and really trying to is, is a crazy thing to try to do. I mean, there are novel generators and things, but I feel like you have to be driven by some internal force that's like, write a novel, write the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, they're so unwieldy because it could go, it can take so many structures, it can spread so widely across so many years versus I think a short story, it's much easier to sort of know, you know, more or less. I mean, they obviously can be very experimental, but you know what I mean? You, you, you have a page limit that's much tighter and smaller. There is so much to this novel. There's so many characters. There's so many moving parts. It takes place over the course of a year. So there's a lot of things that can go down. I, I really loved how how sort of like painted to the edge of the frame, everything felt. And one way that I felt like you were doing that was finding these opposites, you know, like Vivian and Ingrid are opposites. And also like Stephen is an opposite of Ingrid as well. Like it's actually like often Ingrid is the other side of like a spectrum to the person that she's vibing with in that moment. Really only Eunice, I feel like, isn't a complete opposite of her, even though they do take a very different approach to life was that conscious was that something that you were trying to do or is this something that i'm just putting on you oh no i love the way you put that that is definitely an unconscious <laughs> decision i mean well no let me backtrack in the case of vivian that was very conscious the other characters like steven for example yeah i didn't actually think of steven really in that way but i, I can definitely see how as Ingrid, they start off sort of one and the same, mm -hmm. right? We're supposed to think of them as perfect. They're this very harmonious couple where Ingrid is sort of very specific and weird. And she's found this person who gets that and loves it. Um, but yeah, yeah, then she begins to diverge and sort of see Stephen through new uh, colored glasses, shall we say. <laughs> I, um, I really loved that this this trick you pulled off of 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 the rose colored glasses up coming down because I really especially at the beginning the way that we meet Stephen and um, Ingrid's dating past you really do feel like this is a good guy this is a guy that gets her and like really takes care of her she seems they seem to be very very much in sync. And so it, watching as that slowly fell apart, it was like, it, it was like heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to write a villain, honestly, in a way that was so unsuspecting, like the most soft-spoken whisper of a man <laughs> could somehow turn out to be so you know manipulative and emotionally abusive and um it was a delight to write <laughs> you know because i think i think abusers who are uh of that silent gentle type um go under the radar a lot mm. and so steven it was it was yeah really delicious for me to put him on the page and be like this type of man exists um and, and we we have to you got to look out for them you know <laughs> um because yeah they can just creep on past you but yeah it was it, it was funny just <laughs> at a certain point when you know when i was revising i i would lit i would go back to the beginning and try to make them seem even more in harmony and perfect. <laughs> so I did feel a bit sort of evil, just knowing like, oh, just wait until you see, like it's all gonna crumble. Um, but yeah, yeah, Ingrid, it, it was very necessary though. When you think about it, it's like, thank goodness she 
has all these revelations and starts to change and um, that they also have difficult conversations because maybe the relationship would have continued forever if right. her beliefs and politics really stayed the same. Um, but yeah, right. when they start to change, he's just like, you're having a psychotic breakdown. We need to get you to a doctor. <laughs> it, it totally worked. It totally worked on me. No one is a full villain or just like cackling evil, like tying someone to a train track. Everybody is really nuanced in a way that is so surprising. It's it's a fascinating place to feel like Stephen was the true villain throughout. Oh, I think I think there are three villains. <laughs> I think I think you know what's funny with with Michael, John, and Stephen. Mm -hmm. I feel like in in sort of the early version of you know this version, I think they're all more plainly villainous. But I got this note that was sort of like because I was very resistant to humanizing them. Mm -hmm. um, and I got the note that, okay, you don't have to. So I, I um, heard something by an author, Therese Marie Mayotte, I hope I pronounced that right, who said that resisting dehumanization can be a political act. Oh. And that really bowled me over because it gave voice to something that I have felt in writing workshops mm -hmm. where I did not want to dehumanize, for example, a racist character, but the old workshop adage was, well, that's just bad writing. Your characters must be round. They must be three-dimensional. Um, and, you know, we'll probably talk about this when we talk about craft in the real world, uh -huh. but, you know, I just felt, I, I knew in my heart that this choice was deliberate. I was not making a sort of bad craft choice. I was making a choice about the world I believe in. And um, so it was really affirming to to hear Teresa uh, say this. And so, so I, I wanted to stick to that, that I don't have to humanize anyone I don't want to, but that I can make someone's villainy more complex like yes. i can add dimension to someone's villainy and i was like okay you know what i like that when you put it that way that i can work with <laughs> and so i did try to think of you know someone is more insidious if they also keep surprising you yes. because you can't guess what they're gonna do next what i was reacting to i think was just that Stephen's villainy ends up being very simple. Like abuse is always sort of a simple villainy of just thinking you're better than another person and that they don't deserve humanization. Mm. Um, but your your other two villains are com far more complex because there's a lot more that goes into their decisions and how they ended up the way they were. Mm -hmm. So I think that they get these these complexities that ended up making them far more interesting and Stephen, of course ends up just being far more boring, boring. <laughs> yeah he's a he is truly a one note type of guy <laughs> you were talking about craft and you you brought along this craft book craft in the real world Rethinking Fiction Writing and Workshopping by Matthew Celesis. I would love to hear what what made you want to talk about this book with me. Why is it in your yeah. Why is it in your hand, mind? Yeah. So, uh, Craft in the Real World, I have owned for I think you know since it came out uh -huh. and had read parts, but hadn't you know read all of it. And finally was really motivated by, um, I'm starting to teach a class on, uh, well, this Sunday, an online fiction class. And I was like, you know, it is, it is high time. I have left this, um, you know, on my shelf for too long. And in this class, I'm trying an alternative workshop method oh. that I sort of dubbed ask and receive where the author asks the class questions 
And I know the opposite also exists where the class can ask an author questions. So mm -hmm. I may include that as well, but all of it is to break the, you know, quote gag rule of the, that's traditionally associated with writing workshops. Um, and, and yeah, so because I was trying out, I, I'm going to try out this alternative method. I really wanted to um, read this book that I know is exactly about that and about, you know, basically rethinking and also interrogating these sort of maxims that we took for granted that we took as just, you know, inarguable. Um, and I'm so glad I did because my mind is blown. <laughs> um, I think Matthew is a genius and, um, yeah, I have like it all marked up. I keep underlining everything, that problem where you're like, should I just highlight this page? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know exactly what you're talking. There's so many little things that, you know, I feel like I used to, what I used to just have like a general notebook that I would keep and write whatever in. And I, on the cover of it was always covered in quotes that I thought were going to be useful for filling the notebook. And it would have, uh, I, I feel like I, I'm going to cover them with these quotes. Like if writers really believe that art is important to actual life, then the responsibility of actual life are the responsibilities of art. And I love the succinctness of that. That's something that I've, he has a very nice ability. Uh, it's to to take these huge ideas and put them into like two sentences or in this case one um that i just couldn't believe oh i'm i'm totally agree yeah there were so many of those where it is an incredibly short sentence for the amount of truth that's packed in there so i think yeah that's why i'm underlining so much because each one like you said is something that could be printed and like hung you know over your desk um yeah, I'm incredibly grateful this book exists. I I think every writer needs to read it and every writing teacher. It this should just and and because a lot of I think writing teachers don't need to demonstrate any knowledge of pedagogy or teaching experience. It's just like, oh, you you've written a book? Mm -hmm. Good enough. And I'm like, I think you should read this book <laughs> first. <laughs> Um, right. Yeah. Cause it, I think it's, it's not just, not just for writers, but as a, as, I think it even can open a reader's mind too, especially the first two chapters. I feel like where I think it can help put you in the mind of a writer and help you understand why they've done some of the things that they've done and the choices that they've made. And I think it can just make you a more compassionate and empathetic writer. I mean, lit, reader because you'll see and understand and appreciate more of the sort of ways that people set up character and describe point of view and why they choose the details that they choose. Were, were there any ideas that you really pulled out that you're like this? I'm going to be focusing on this for a while. What was so refreshing was things that I think a lot of marginalized writers have felt, but it's difficult to put into words or you just think, oh, this only happened to me. And, and so I don't know if this is a truth. It's just maybe something specific to me. And so seeing in a book, things that I have felt has been really validating. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm excited to be like, yeah, you know, it's not just me. Look, <laughs> Matthew says it too. Okay. And one of them is, yeah, that craft isn't apolitical. It does not exist in a vacuum. And I think it is so exhausting to be in writing spaces and workshop spaces where that is the, considered the norm. And because it's considered the norm, it, it's, it weirdly becomes like a free-for-all. People actually do say racist things, sexist things, you know, homophobic things in workshop, but because they've just decided craft is apolitical, they somehow don't think that's what they're doing. Um, and 
that to me just uh matthew's insistence because it's it's so important and true that none of this exists in a vacuum and all of it is cultural all of it is a decision right show don't tell is a decision mm -hmm. and we choose to believe in it or we don't mm -hmm. and plenty of writers around the world do not believe in it and all of this you know what is considered good writing or correct writing it's um down to which audience are you privileging and you know again it's saying things that i think i've felt mm -hmm. i've lived but i couldn't find the language to explain you know why does this make me so upset and this moment in this workshop why did that make me so upset you know you because it's just it's it's emotional it's like you <laughs> it's hard to think through um sort of past those emotions so i really yeah just appreciated this reframing of something as um yeah not not aesthetics and craft are not divorced from reality from culture from our politics from any of the stuff that makes us human on you know yeah i and and I think that his ability to reframe things and, and make you question about, you know, I haven't questioned Aristotle's model of plot ever. You know, I, you were, I got taught it and that was it, um, you know, and I've thought about story in that way ever since. And to be told that like, okay, you can think that, but remember he was talking about theater uh, and he was talking about a specific type of theater and he was also of the mind that the only way you can make art is if you have slaves, because you need you need to be free to be an artist. Uh, all of these things were just like, oh, wait, why did I put so much stock in? And and it's not like I haven't, of course, seen how you can subvert these tropes and and fall away from the, that Aristotelian world. But I still I hadn't questioned why that was just seen as a universal truth. Yeah, yeah, that Aristotle is taught for sure as somehow not a subjective human of his time, <laughs> when clearly he was, um, and his beliefs show that, and divorcing him from the context that produced him is is straight up dangerous, you know? Um, yeah, I think there's so many things I recognized in my writing as like, oh, I have internalized what i think plot is and what i think a climax is or denouement or all these terms that are just um in american writing workshops that we are just take like this is this is truth with a capital t every story needs these things and um definitely in my writing has a lot of those those different you know beats um I'm not gonna beat myself up for it or anything because right. I'm like, I I am a product of an American writing program, you know? Mm -hmm. Like all these really cool different narrative techniques from Chinese storytelling, for example. I was like, wow, this is so cool. I wish I'd been taught that. And I'm sure if I had been, like my writing would be different, you know? But totally. I was, especially an undergrad, taught a very, just like he said, Raymond Carver, Hemingway, Flannery O'Connor based type of uh, fiction. And so I am clearly a product of, well, I mean, I don't, not that I write about rural white people, at least anymore, <laughs> but that I think just, um, yeah, you, we have to unlearn. And I am so grateful to all the writers before me who've challenged you know writers like that so it's been it's you know yeah for many years i think a lot of writers have have resisted i also loved reading this after um after your book because there's this part where he's talking about the chinese american literature and how only white scholars basically it's like a field dominated by white scholars and then it's just like oh yeah i I can see why where that could cause some problems. I just read a book about it. <laughs> oh, 
Oh yeah. Yeah. If you just go on any sort of East Asian or Asian studies faculty website and peruse, I mean, most of the time, yeah, it'll be very, very white. I feel like now there there'll be like one or two Asian <laughs> professors. Um, do you find craft books useful all the time or, or is, is this one uh, special if in its, in its scope? I mean, I, I haven't read necessarily a fiction craft book before, actually. Mm. I'm trying to think of if I was ever assigned one um, as a student, but yeah, on my own, I haven't ever sought one out for fiction, but I have read craft books for screenwriting oh. um, because I am an aspiring screenwriter. <laughs> awesome. And um, so I read, I, th I think I read two. Yeah. And those ones, I mean, because screenwriting is very foreign to me, um, it was really helpful for me to, uh, like everything was new, mm -hmm. you know, I'd never taken like an introductory class. So for me, it's hugely useful. Also took so many notes. Um, but yeah, I think for fiction, I tended to be just, I don't know if the word is resistant. It was just there, there was so much, there's so much to learn from books and stories that I think I would refer to those as my teachers. You know, I don't know yes. if that sounds a little cheesy, but like you know, I really would study, try to study stories. I mean, that's the thing is a story is really good. I just forget I'm reading a story and I'm like this, I'm just in the story. Right. Right. But, um, like for books and stories that I've, I've read multiple times because I love them. I'm definitely trying to learn from them. So I think that's sort of how I've tried to teach myself. Um, and this is really the first but craft book that I think also spoke to me personally because yes. I have been personally traumatized by writing workshops. So it felt like it was written in a lot of ways for for me. I mean, I don't know if that's true. I don't. I don't think it was written for me. But I think the when I heard about this book, it was like, oh yes, I've been waiting for this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so it answered something I needed, and it essentially makes you not feel gaslit right yeah. because it is affirming your emotions and your reality is as, as real <laughs> yeah I, it almost was a it was an excellent like diagnosis of like basically every time that there i've ever been in a workshop a writing workshop that has fallen to pieces it's just like well yeah they were made like the how could they not fall to pieces when like this is it, how it's made up and this is how it's all gonna go uh so i i would love to be in some of these alternative ideas that he um is putting at the end yeah i i just feel like after you read it how can you want to go back to the gag rule format it seems it just it just seems inherently violent for folks that point. don't know that term that's uh mm. when when you turn in your work for everybody to to comment on you don't say anything you're just supposed to just take whatever they say because you wrote it and you don't get to control anything. So you, everybody gets to react to it without you saying anything. Yeah, um, you're you're almost treated like you're invisible. Sometimes they don't refer to you by name. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just the writer. I think I think it's very surreal. If you go through the experience, I it like there's nothing really like it because I think we've all if you've done a workshop, you've all done a workshop where they'll be like, huh what could the writer possibly mean by this i'm this is it and and you literally are sitting there and you want to be like i am here i am one foot away from you and you can ask me but they will just look around the room like gee huh, if only we could ask well, i guess we'll never know let's carry on and just hypothesize for an hour over something that we could resolve in one minute if we pretended the author that we can all see is suddenly present <laughs> you know it's so weird it is there's nothing like it it is extremely odd or you know when they get stuck on something like your characters ate hot dogs here like why hot dogs and they get like really stuck on like this detail that 
was never supposed to be a place to get stuck on. Uh, I, yeah, I, I miss some parts of school life, but workshop was always a bizarre farce. And <laughs> yeah, very stressful. Oh yeah. So many workshops are derailed by like, I was so glad Matthew called it out that believability is literally the most uninteresting, useless thing to discuss in a workshop mm -hmm. because it presumes that you've had every livable experience in the universe. <laughs> Therefore, you can now decide what is believable, not believable. And like you said, it'll be someone like for 30 minutes, workshops will be like, well, would you eat an hot dog at 3 a.m.? And then someone else is like, oh, well, one time I ate a hot dog at 4 a.m. And then someone else will be like, well, I think in this world, hot dogs mean symbolize this. And it would mean patriarchy. And, and then someone else is like, well, I'm offended because I grew up with hot dogs. <laughs> this is really emotional and personal for me. Yeah. I don't, it's just, it's insane. It doesn't, and then all the while the writer is sitting there just like, have I lost my mind and entered some alternate dimension? Right. And this is all the more painful when it's not like a hot dog, but it's like a racist attack. Yeah. And they're like, I don't think a white person would ever say that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that he gets to the bottom of it. And uh, it's it was a great read. I'm so glad that you helped uh, get it, jump it off my shelf into my hands. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah, it was it was it was a great read. And um, I'd love to actually get into recommendations. Do you have anything you'd love to rec recommend to the listeners of the show? Or do you would you like me to recommend some things and while you think of some things to recommend? Yeah, you you go first. Okay. This is this is a book to pre-order. Um it is it comes out this fall from Drawn and Quarterly, Kate Beaton, um, of Hark a Vagrant fame, has written her first serious graphic memoir. And it's about how she uh worked in the oil fields in Canada to, to pay off her student loans. And it's just about that time in her life. It's incredibly beautifully put together. And it's just an amazing encapsulation of two years of her life. Um, it's absolutely fantastic. I feel like people are really going to be talking about it this, this fall. Um, so you could pre-order and be the coolest kid on your block. Um, and the other thing I'm going to recommend is... Uh, if you can find it, the Wandery podcast, The Shrink Next Door. Uh, I'm very late to this game. I, I watched the Apple TV show. I've watched, I've listened to the podcast. Whatever way you want to take on, on this story, it's about someone abusing power over someone else. And it is true. And it's just a crazy, wild story about a therapist who took over a guy's life for 27 years. And it's, the details are all insane and the Paul Rudd, Will Ferrell adaptation of it is great. The podcast is great. Whatever way you want to take it in. It's, it's a really wonderful thing. That sounds fascinating. Whoa. Yeah. It's Say crazy. the name again. The shrink next door. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to write that down. <laughs> it's on Apple TV and it's on Wondery podcasts. That's good to know that we can recommend a podcast because I do have a podcast <laughs> to yeah, recommend. Recommend whatever you'd like. I was actually on. <laughs> um, they, they're really great and I would love them to get more, more traction. Very spice stuck in my throat. Um, oh. <laughs> so it's called White People Won't Save You. Uh, it's on Apple Podcasts, and it's hosted by um, two really great guys, Jordan and Cameron. And each week, I think it's every week, they dissect a white savior film. Oh. So, you know, there's so many classics to go through. They're unending. Um, and the one we did was on The Great Wall with Matt Damon. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, yeah, it was. it's funny because... He, it's a film I probably never would have watched if not for the podcast. 
it's sort of really delicious and fun to watch a film knowing that you are going to pick it apart. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's it's great. I've listened to a few episodes and each time there, it, you just learn all the ways this film is a certain film like freedom writers or you know it's even worse than you thought or remembered or sometimes you know i haven't even watched a film but it sounds so bad i'm like i think i need to watch this just to see how bad it is um and it's yeah it, i guess it is a little disturbing to realize also how many of these films are out there still mm -hmm. um yeah because the yeah. great wall is not that long ago it really was not <laughs> Uh, so that's a podcast I'd love to recommend. Um, I feel like, is it really basic if I recommend Severance? Are we past that? <laughs> I'm thinking about Severance again because my friend, I'd been recommending it to my friend. I was like, you have to watch this. And she uh, just finished it and is so excited about it and is now making me excited about it again and remembering how incredible this show is. Have you seen it? Yes. Yes. I, I, have read the um the tie-in little novel thing that they like what they made a tie-in a tie it's like 25 pages it, you can download it from the ibooks store like that's how obsessed i got with it because i was just like anything anything related to this oh, show, oh i know more well, then, about so okay i'm totally gonna read that and also do you do you know there's a game what hold on let me let me my this so this is my friend who was really into it just got just sent me um her co-worker's friend made uh a, a game that mimics the work they have to do in that oh. department okay i'll spell it out so everyone can also check it out if you've watched severance um so it's lumon like right lumen lumon um hyphen industries.com all right. Okay. And then when you click on it, it's incredible. It the screen, well, I can show it to you because you have video, but people at listening at home oh will have God. to and then you can try to find the bad numbers <laughs> and then put them in their little I haven't succeeded so far. I think maybe I need to do this on like a desktop, not a not my phone, but isn't that amazing? It's oh, it's amazing that people someone just created this from love of the show but yeah i mean i think a lot of people have seen it but if you're listening and you haven't seen it what are you waiting for no, <laughs> this show is just it did so many things i didn't expect it to i think mm -hmm. a lot of us who you know consume a lot of media it's easy to not feel surprised anymore to not like often you can guess what's going to happen next and this show i could not guess mm -hmm. every episode it was something completely new and i felt the storytelling was so bold and and took so many risks that paid off just like as, as a storyteller i had so much admiration for what it was willing to do and sort of the emotional journey it took me on um so yeah i think severance is a work of art a must watch yeah yeah, I, I haven't felt this way about a TV show since Lost. Lost was the last time that I was so like deeply like wanted to go down every rabbit hole that they presented. And because there's so many just fun details. Yeah. What a great show. Seconded. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I will also recommend this little book uh, called Disorientation. It's so <laughs> I'm showing you your own book. Um, it's so <laughs> amazing. It was really a fantastic completely like compulsively i just turn page turner um which is not what you expect from a book about someone trying to finish their dissertation mm. um, <laughs> so it sneaks up on you it's really wonderful um and i'm so glad that you wrote it uh Aww, thanks christopher thanks for reading it and, and enjoying and to the to the folks at home um go and buy it it's out and you can experience it for yourself audiobook is wonderful too and as long as i'm telling you to do things you can also go on you know the podcast app that you're listening to this on and review the show give me five stars if you're not going to give me five stars just don't leave a review i already know 
I already know the problems. <laughs> and uh, I can win these five stars. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I really appreciate it when people go on patreon.com slash SMDB and give me a little money. Um, I'm actually going to do I'm, the next subscriber gift. I'm going to give stickers to everyone at $5 and above. And I've, I've ordered the stickers. I'm so excited. Um, they look great. And so please subscribe, patreon.com slash SMDB. And again, Elaine, thank you so much. This has been awesome and your book is fantastic. And I hope I get to talk to you again soon. Thank you, Christopher. Thank you everyone for listening to Take care. Bye.